Book Two, Chapter Seven of The Four Stragglers by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fight For a moment, grim-lipped, Locke stood there at the door. He had accomplished exactly the opposite to what he had intended. The old man, the money, were both in infinitely greater peril now than under almost any other circumstances of which he could conceive. He did not blame himself. The vagaries, the impulses, the irrational promptings of an insane mind were beyond his control or guidance. It was the last thing he had expected the old maniac to do. But it was done now. It was too late to consider that phase of it. There was work for his own brain to do, he hoped more logically. He turned sharply now, and began to make his way as best he could in the darkness toward the window at the end of that aisle of tanks outside of which he knew the masked man had stood. He dared not show any light here, though by so doing he would have been able to move more swiftly. The man who had been at the window was almost certainly gone now, to watch for the old maniac's appearance outside the house and Mr. Marlin would assuredly, and as quickly as he could, scurry outside to hide his money again. And even if the man in the mask had had no previous knowledge of the old madman's strange nightly movements, which would be a very unsafe assumption on which to depend, he would have heard enough at the window, if not to know then, at least, to expect that the old maniac's one thought now would be to secrete his money and that the hiding-place, this time-lock that God had made, as the old man had called it, was somewhere outside the house. But the watcher's new lurking-place might still embrace a view of the window, and if he, Locke, climbed out with the light behind him... He was at the window now. He smiled grimly. He was pitted against no fool. But then he never had been fool enough himself ever to place Captain Francis Newcomb in that category. The man in the mask had left no tell-tale evidence of his presence behind him. The shade was drawn down, the window closed. Locke lifted the shade now, raised the window quietly, and stood for an instant listening, staring out. He could see little or nothing, other than the swaying branches of trees against the skyline and there was no sound save the sweep of the wind which was still blowing half a gale. And now he swung himself over the window-sill, dropped the few feet to the ground, and crouched against the wall, listening, staring again into the blackness. Nothing. The moon, burrowing deeper under the clouds, made it even blacker than it had been a moment ago. He straightened up and began to run toward the front of the house. It was perhaps a case of blind man's bluff, but there was not an instant to lose, and, deprived of any aid from the sense of either sight or hearing, he was left with only one thing to do. From the living-room window a little while ago, he had seen Mr. Marlin coming toward the house from across the lawn, after having presumably just unearthed his money from its hiding-place. The chances were that it was by the same route the old maniac would return now. Locke ran on, stumbling, half-groping his way through what seemed a veritable maze of outbuildings here at the rear of the house. The minutes seemed to be flying, wasted. The old maniac, if he had left the house the moment he had run from the aquarium, must by now have had a good three minutes' start, and if the man in the mask had at once picked up the trail, then... 
No, he was not too late. He had reached the front corner of the house now, and across the lawn, where in the open space it was a little lighter, something, a blacker thing than the darkness, moved swiftly, caught his eye. It was the figure of a man running toward the trees in the direction of the path that led to the shore, and from which old Mr. Marlin had emerged earlier in the evening. And now the figure was gone, lost in the trees. But he, Locke, too, was running now, sprinting for all he knew across the lawn. It was perhaps sixty yards. There was no time to use caution and circuit warily around the edge of the woods. He might be seen. But he had to take that chance. He would not be heard. The soft grass and the whine of the wind guaranteed him against that. It was a little better than an even break. The figure he had seen was not, he was sure, that of the old maniac. The long, flapping dressing-gown would, even in a shadowy way, have been distinguishable. If he were right, then, in his supposition, the figure he had seen was the man in the mask, and old Mr. Marlin was already in there on the path leading through the woods to the shore. A cry, sudden, like a scream that was strangled, came with the gusting wind. It came again. From the edge of the lawn now, Locke leaped forward along the path. Black, twisted shapes loomed up just ahead of him. He flung himself upon them. A low, startled, vicious snarl answered his attack. After that there was no sound while perhaps a minute passed, save the rustle of leaves and foliage, the snip of broken twigs under swiftly moving, straining feet. Locke was fighting now with merciless, exultant ferocity. It was the man in the mask he was at grips with. It was not the dressing-gown alone, the feel of it, that distinguished one from the other. He had even in that first plunging rush in the darkness felt his hand brush against the mask on the man's cheek. It was all shadow, all blackness, to this side and that, close locked together, he and his antagonist now swayed madly. The man's one evident desire was to break away from his, Locke's, encircling arms, his, Locke's, purpose not only to prevent escape, but to unmask the other. The moon might come out again at any instant, filter through the branches, just enough light to see the other's face if the mask were off. A peal of laughter rang out. It was the old madman. Locke, as he fought, more sensed than saw the old man's form close to the ground, as though the other were groping around on his hands and knees. The peal of laughter came again, and then the old maniac's voice, in a triumphant scream, "'I've got it! I've got it! Money, money, money! Millions, millions, millions! It's all here! I've got it! It's all!' The voice was dying away in the distance. Locke laughed a little with grim, panting breath. Whether it had been dropped or had been snatched from him in the first attack, old Marlin had now obviously recovered his package of banknotes. He was gone now, running to hide it again, of course. In any event, the old maniac and his money were safe, and... His antagonist had wrenched free an arm. Locke's head jolted back suddenly from a wicked short-arm blow that caught the point of his chin. A sensation of numbness seemed to be trying insidiously to creep upward to his brain, but it did not reach that far, not quite that far. Only it loosened his grip for an instant, and the shadowy form that he had held appeared to be floating away from him. And then, as his brain cleared, 
he shot his body forward in a low lunging tackle the other almost eluded him but his hands caught and clung to the man's arm both around one of the other's arms the man wrenched and squirmed in a savage frenzy to tear himself free there was a sound of the ripping and rending of cloth something showed white in the darkness the other's sleeve had torn away at the armpit a white shirt-sleeve it was a beacon in the blackness the man would not get away now there was something more tangible than a shadow something to see in a flash Locke shifted his hold and his arms swept around the other pinioning the man's hands to his sides tighter tighter neither spoke the only sounds were hoarse rasping gasps for breath tighter he was bending the man backward now slowly surely a little more no the man was too strong the pinioned arms were free again and Locke felt them gripped together like a vice around the small of his back they lurched now swaying from side to side like drunken men the mask to get at the mask they were locked together the chin of one on the other's shoulder straining until the muscles cracked Locke began to raise his head a little the hot breath of the other was on his cheek now and now his cheek rubbed against the other's mask an oath broke suddenly from the man quick muttered the voice unrecognizable in its laboured breathing and the other seeming to sense his Locke's intention suddenly relinquished his grip snatched for a throat-hold instead and missing began to tear at Locke's arms in an effort to break away and then Locke laughed again grimly it would avail nothing to snatch at the mask and get it off in the darkness here if by so doing with his own hold on the other gone the man should get away there was another way to get the mask off and still maintain his grip upon the other they were holding now seemingly as motionless as statues the strength of one matched against the other in a supreme effort the sweat broke out in great beads on Locke's forehead his arms seemed to be tearing away from their sockets he could feel the muscles in the other's neck as it hugged against his own swell and stand out like great steel ridges and then slowly inch by inch he forced his own head around until his face was against the other's cheek. He could just feel the mask now with his lips. Another inch, yes, now he had it. His teeth closed on the lower edge of the mask, chewed at it until he had a still firmer grip, and then he suddenly wrenched his head backward. The mask came away in Locke's teeth. He spat it out. The other was a man gone mad with fury now and with a new strength that fury brought he strove only to strike and strike again but Locke only closed his hold the tighter to strike back was to take the chance of the other breaking loose it was too dark to see the man's face though the mask was off now but it could only be a few yards along the path to the open space of the lawn out there and the moon would not always be fickle it would break through the clouds and they were rocking, lurching, twisting, swaying in their mad struggle, and now they circled more widely, and branches snatched and tore at them, and broke and fell from the trees at the sides of the path. And here Locke gave a step, and there another, working nearer and nearer to the edge of the lawn. And then suddenly there came a half-choked cry from the other. The man had tripped in the undergrowth. 
Locke swung his weight to complete the fall, tripped himself, and both, with their balance gone, but grappling the fiercer at each other, pitched headlong with terrific force into the trees at the side of the path. And Locke was for an instant conscious of a great blow, of streaks of fiery light that smote at his eyeballs with excruciating pain, and then utter blackness came. When he opened his eyes again, a moonbeam lay along the path, and a figure in a long dressing-gown was passing by. He was dreaming, wasn't he? There was a sick sensation in his head, a giddiness, and besides that it gave him great pain. He raised himself up cautiously on his elbow, fighting to clear his mind, and suddenly his lips tightened grimly. There was something ironical in that moonbeam, something that mocked him in disclosing a figure in a dressing-gown, instead of a face that had been unmasked, yet still could not be seen. He looked around him now. He was lying a few feet in from the edge of the path, and against the trunk of a large tree. Yes, he remembered now. His head had struck against the tree, and he had been knocked unconscious, and the man who had been masked was gone. He rose to his feet. He was very groggy, and for a moment he leaned against the tree trunk for support. The giddiness began to pass away. That was old Mr. Marlin who had just gone by. Well, neither the old man nor his money had come to any harm, anyway. He stepped out on the path, and from there to the edge of the lawn. The old madman was just disappearing around the corner of the veranda. Locke put his hands to his eyes. How his head throbbed! How long had he lain there unconscious? He took out his watch. His eyes seemed blurred. Or was it the meagerness of the moonlight? He was not quite sure, but it seemed to be ten minutes after three. It wasn't very easy to figure backward. He did not know how long he and the old maniac had been together in the aquarium, but, say, half an hour. Starting then at the hour of the rendezvous, which had been at a quarter past two, that would bring it to a quarter of three. Then, say, ten minutes for what had happened afterward, including the fight, and that would make it five minutes of three. He must therefore have been lying in there unconscious for at least fifteen minutes. The man who had worn the mask was gone now, naturally. But perhaps it would not be so difficult to pick up the trail. Captain Francis Newcomb's room offered very promising possibilities, and there was a torn coat-sleeve that would not readily be replaced in fifteen minutes. He made his way now across the lawn, and up the steps to the veranda. He tried the front door. It was locked. Of course. He had forgotten that he had left the house by crawling out of the aquarium window. There was no use going back that way, because the old madman had locked the aquarium door. Mr. Marlin, though, had some means of entrance, and if that door, through which the man had so suddenly appeared, in the back hall meant anything, the entrance the old man used was likely to be somewhere in the rear but Mr. Marlin would probably have locked that, too, behind him. He looked up and down the now moon-flecked veranda, and began to try the French windows that opened upon it from the front rooms of the house. The first two were locked as he had expected. It was only a chance, but he might as well begin here as anywhere else. He tried the third one almost perfunctorily. It opened at a touch. "'I'm in luck,' Locke muttered, and stepped inside. 
He turned the knob to lock the French window behind him, and found the bolt already thrown. Queer! He stood frowning for an instant, then stooped and felt along the inside edge of the threshold. The socket that ordinarily housed the bolt-bar was gone. The same condition, therefore, obviously existed at the top, as the long bar had a double throw. He straightened up, a curious smile twitching at his lips now, and making his way silently to the stairs, he reached the upper hall, stole along it to the door of his own room, and entered. Here, from one of his bags, he procured a revolver, and a moment later, his ear to the panel, listening, he stood outside Captain Francis Newcomb's door. There was no sound from within. Softly he began to turn the door-handle. The door would hardly be locked. That would be a misplay. One didn't lock one's bedroom door when a guest in a private house. No, it was not locked. He had the door ajar now. Again he listened. There was still no sound from within. Was the man back yet or not? The absence of any sound meant nothing, save that Newcomb was probably not in the sitting-room of his suite. He might easily, however, be in either the bathroom or the bedroom beyond. Locke swung the door a little wider open, stepped through, and closed it noiselessly behind him. Again he stood still, his revolver now outthrust a little before him. The moonlight played across the floor. It disclosed an open door beyond. Still no sound. Locke moved forward. He could see into the bedroom now. The bed was not only empty, but had not been slept in. He turned quickly and opened the bathroom door. The bathroom, too, was empty. Captain Francis Newcomb had not, then, as yet returned. With a grim smile, Locke thrust his revolver into his pocket. It was, perhaps, just as well. The time while he waited might possibly be used to very good advantage. Captain Francis Newcomb's baggage was invitingly at one's disposal. The Talofa, with its confined quarters, and where, on the little vessel, it was always crowded, as it were, had offered no such opportunity. Locke opened one of the bags. His smile now had changed to one of irony. Barring any other justification, turnabout was no more than fair play, was it? He possessed a moral certainty, if he lacked the actual proof, that Captain Francis Newcomb had not hesitated to invade his, Locke's, cabin on the liner, and go through his, Locke's, effects. He laughed a little now in low, grim mirth. He wondered which of the two, Newcomb or himself, would be the better rewarded for his efforts. There was little light, but Locke worked swiftly by the sense of touch, with fingers that ignored the general contents, and that sought dexterously for hidden things. His fingers traversed every inch of the lining of the bag, top, bottom, and sides. He disturbed nothing. Presently he laid the bag aside, and started on another, and suddenly he nodded his head sharply in satisfaction. This one was what was generally known as a Gladstone bag, and under the lining, at one side, his fingers felt what seemed like a folded paper that moved under his touch. The lining was intact, of course but there must be some way of getting in underneath it. Yes, here it was. Rather clever, and ordinarily quite safe, unless one were actually looking for something of the sort. There was a flap, or pocket, at the side of the bag, the ordinary sort of thing, and at the bottom of the flap, Locke's fingers, working deftly, 
found that the edges of the lining, while apparently fastened together, were made, in reality, into a double fold, the lining being stiff enough, even when the edges were displaced, to fall back of its own accord into place again. He separated the edges now, worked his fingers into the opening, and drew out an envelope. It had been torn open at one end, and there was a superscription of some sort on it in faded writing, which, in the semi-darkness, he could not make out. He stood up, and went quickly to the window to obtain the full benefit of the moonlight. He could just decipher the writing now. Quote, Polly's papers which is God's truth. Mrs. Wicks, X, her mark. Unquote. For a moment he stood there motionless, but his eyes had lifted from the envelope now, and were fixed on the lawn below. The window here gave on the side of the lawn with the trees at the rear of the house in view. A man had just stepped out from the shadow of the trees, and was coming toward the house. Locke stared, even the envelope in his hand temporarily forgotten, as a frown of perplexity that deepened into amazed chagrin gathered on his forehead. The figure was quite recognizable, even minutely so. It was Captain Francis Newcomb. It accounted for the missing sockets on that French window, perhaps, but the man was as perfectly and immaculately dressed as he had been that night at dinner. There was no torn coat on missing coat-sleeve. The man he had fought with, the man in the mask, had not been Captain Francis Newcomb. He laughed now, not pleasantly. He had obviously been waiting here for the wrong man. There was no need of waiting any longer, unless he desired to be caught himself. Queer! Strange! But there was the envelope. Polly's papers. What was it that was God's truth? At least he would find that out. He thrust the envelope into his pocket, closed the bag, and returned to his own room. He switched on the light, hurriedly took the envelope from his pocket again, and from it drew out two documents. He studied them while minute after minute passed, then dropping them on the table before him, he stood with drawn face and clenched fists, staring across the room. Polly's birth certificate! The marriage certificate of her parents! He saw again the agony in the dark eyes, he heard again the agony in the voice that had proclaimed a parentage outside the pale, and a great oath came now from Locke's white lips. He flung himself into a chair beside the table. He fought for cool, contained reasoning. These papers! Newcomb! Did it change anything? Place Newcomb in any better light, because it was some other man who had worn that mask tonight? He shook his head in quick, emphatic dissent. It did not. He was sure, certain of that. The trail led too far back, was too well defined, too conclusive. And even tonight, what was Newcomb doing out of the house at three o'clock in the morning? Ah, yes, he had it. The old maniac's words came back with sudden and sure significance. Digging, digging, digging. The wrong scent. The hut in the woods at the rear of the house. Locke gnawed savagely at his lips. That was where Newcomb had come from, the woods at the rear of the house. It meant that Newcomb was the one who had been tricked by the old madman's cunning, which could never have happened if Newcomb had not been stealthily trying to find the hidden money. It simply meant that Newcomb was the one who had been on the wrong scent, and that someone else had been on the right one. His face was set in lines like chiseled marble now, 
Who was this someone else? Was the question very hard to answer? The field was very limited, significantly limited now. He wasn't wrong, was he? He couldn't be wrong. And there was always the torn sleeve. Locke's eyes fixed upon the two documents on the table again. Captain Francis Newcomb. No, it did not make Newcomb any the less a guilty man, because it was not he who had worn the mask to-night. Newcomb stood out, sharply defined against the light of evidence which, if only circumstantial, was strong enough to damn the man a thousand times over for what he was. And here, adding to that evidence, was the proof that Polly's identity had been, and was being, deliberately concealed from her. It opened a vista to uglier and still more evil things, things that only a soul dead to decency, black as the pit of hell, could have conceived and patiently put into execution. A child, a gutter-snipe, Polly had called herself, rescued from naked poverty and the slums of Whitechapel by a man such as Newcomb, whose only promptings were the promptings of a fiend. Why? Was there room to question further why Captain Francis Newcomb had years ago adopted such a ward, when now before one's eyes those years were bearing their poison fruit? Polly's introduction into this family here was even at this moment being traded upon to effect the theft of half a million dollars. That was too obvious now to permit denial. Newcomb was making of a girl, high-minded, pure-souled, a hideous cat's paw. Yes, yes. All that was clear enough. But why should Polly have been deprived of her rightful name, her claim to honest parentage? Was it to weld a stronger bond of gratitude, or make her the more helpless, and therefore the more dependent upon her guardian? Where were these parents, dead or living? There was Mrs. Wicks, Mrs. Wicks, who had posed as the mother. Well, there were certain quarters in London where those who strayed outside the law could be made to talk. Mrs. Wicks should be able to furnish very interesting information. It was not far to Whitechapel in London, by cable. His mind, his brain, worked on. But now suddenly in turmoil and misery, despite all effort of his to hold himself in check. Polly! Polly Gray! She loved this monster, that she thought a man, and called her guardian. Not the love of a maid for lover, but with the love, the honour, the respect and gratitude that she would give a cherished father. The truth would break her heart. The love her friends had given her turned to their own undoing. The shame would be torture. The self-degradation, the abasement that she would know, would be beyond the bearing. Her faith would be a shattered thing. Locke's clenched hands lay outspread across the table. He drew them suddenly together and dropped his head upon them. "'And you love her,' he whispered to himself. "'Do you know what that is going to mean? You did not count on that, did you? Do you know where that will lead? Do you know the consequences?' He answered his own questions. "'No,' he said numbly. "'I don't know what it is going to mean. I know I love her.'" End of Book Two, Chapter Seven